You're listening to Rally DNA. Now those rally fans are getting pretty fed up with seeing the Audis and the Peugeots win everything. So this year there's a new British supercar with a great chance of beating the world. It's an opportunity of restoring the dominance that Britain last held in the sport in the 60s, the great days of the Mini. Welcome back to Rally DNA for episode eight of season one. I'm Killian Cronin, joined as ever by the gravel crews, Mr. Jamie Arkel. Hello, Jamie. Hello, everyone. Hello, Killian. And before I introduce this week's guest, I should provide maybe a little background. In 1980, two men came together to lay the foundation for a new car intended to compete at the very forefront of rallying at the time. Patrick Head, chief designer at Williams Grand Prix Engineering, was looking for a new project outside their usual realm of Formula One, which at the time was going through a little bit of a somewhat turbulent patch politically, and Williams were looking for other potential sources of revenue. Meanwhile, Austin Rover, who at this time had no current works rallying program since the TR7 V8 had wrapped up, did have some funding available to put towards their next project and were on the lookout for someone to design and engineer such a vehicle. After a meeting between Head and John Davenport, who was Austin Rover's motorsport director, Williams were given the go-ahead to produce a design under the name of the Austin Rover Metro Very High Performance Derivative. Thankfully, this would later be renamed in its final form to what we now know as the MG Metro 6R4. This was February 1981. To do this, Austin Rover and Williams needed a crack team of individuals to get this project rolling and ready to compete in the harsh conditions of a rally stage would present. Today, we're talking to one of those crack team, Mr. Ian Anderson, who was part of Williams at the time. Welcome along, Ian, and thanks for giving up your time to talk to us. Yeah, no problem at all. Ian, would you, would you be kind enough to tell us uh, a little, about, little bit about your background and how you got involved in motorsport? Yeah, sure. Yeah. Uh, I did my apprenticeship at um, National Gas Turbine research establishment, which was a military establishment looking into jet engine research. Uh, I, I finished my, my apprenticeship and the pay scales, obviously, to do with government are not very good. So I decided to head off into the wide world, see what was out there. Uh, I ended up, a few, a few little jobs, but I ended up working for, for golf research racing, which was just at the end of where they were racing the Porsches. 917s, uh, and then they were building their own cars, the Mirages. So I stayed there for two and a half years and did a couple of Le Mans. Uh, and then I saw an advert for Formula One, which was Fittipaldi at the time. Uh, I went there, stayed there for a while. Uh, didn't get me very excited, I must admit. Um, I left. I saw an advert about six months later for a, a job at Frank Williams, and I saw that Patrick Head was um, going to be working with Frank, whereas previously working with Frank was a bit dicey, really. He never knew we were going to get paid, but uh, <laughs> and I was going to work there at the one time, and 
That was that particular time I was trying to get a mortgage and the mortgage advisor said, well, it wouldn't be a good idea because uh, you need to keep your payments up every month. So anyway, so as it transpired, I saw that Patrick was going to be working with Frank and I thought, well, that's a good basis. I applied and got a job there. And that was 1978, at the beginning of 78. Um, about a couple of months in, I ended up being chief mechanic because the chief mechanic who was there at the time vanished, disappeared. I think the drink got the better of him. But anyway, he, he went uh, and it was left. I appeared to be the only one with enough information or knowledge or experience. So I ended up being chief mechanic. Um, we, built, we were running the 06, which was a good car, which was Patrick Head's first car he designed himself with Neil Oatley. Um, but it was a little bit fragile. And then he did a, a copy of the Lotus 72, which turned out to be very, very, very good. Um, had a couple of little problems, electrical problems early on with it. And because it was late, we missed out on winning the championship that year, not by much. But 1980, well, we pretty much blitzed it then. The car was extremely reliable. We had no problem winning the Drivers and the Constructors' Championship. So that was good. But at the end of 1980, I really had enough of Formula One. Because in those days, there was so much traveling, so much testing. You very had, didn't have much time at home. So I was married. We had a daughter. Decided that I didn't really want to do any more traveling. You know, Frank and Patrick tried to persuade me with uh, money, but that didn't work either. So I decided that's it. I was going to going to retire from Formula One, especially on the road. Um, Patrick said he didn't think there was anything for me to do at Didcot at that time. So I said, okay, fair enough. I don't mind. You know, I'll, I'll find something will turn up. I'll find another job, sort of thing. And then it was only a couple of weeks later, he actually came to me and said, uh, ah, we're doing a project, Metro 6R4. Do you fancy doing that? So, okay, right. Now, when someone says that to you, you immediately think, oh, well, this could be interesting. We know, could we have a, a large group to build it? But in actual fact, it was only four of us. And a huge amount has been written about in the early days of the 6R4. Is, John Piper, uh, there was myself, um, and the other chap, the designer. The designer, Brian O'Rourke, he was the guy who did all the structure. Now, he's an incredibly clever guy, and Patrick recruited him when he was out in America, when we were out in America racing. And I think he worked for a, I think it's some military company. So. I don't quite know what Brian thought when he turned up at Williams in Didcot. Um, he ended up at a porter cabin out the back of the factory <laughs> with John Piper. Uh, so he'd, he'd come from somewhere pretty exotic to somewhere that was about as basic as you could get. But uh, the two of them we're rapidly working away, trying to produce a structure, and John Piper was doing the little mechanical side and the gearbox and the final drive systems. And myself and another chap called Derek Jones, we were working away trying to make a facility 
that we could build this car. So we had to uh, go out and buy a lot of equipment so we could just actually start putting it together. Surface table, we had to buy a surface table. Now I went, I went up to a, a company up in Sheffield to look for a surface table because we needed a big surface table to build this car because we need to be able to work off the datum so we knew where everything was. So I found a surface table up there. It was the bleakest place I'd ever been to. <laughs> it had 50-gallon oil drums with fires burning in it and all these guys. It was it's like in the middle of the Arctic. It was terrible. But I found a, a decent surface table and uh, bought it. I think we paid about £3,000 for it. And I remember it cost it cost seven thousand pound to get it down from there to down to Digcot, and a crane hire to get it into the factory. But we got it in, and then from there we built an overhead crane. We went out and we bought spot welder, bought other equipment as well. Uh, and then by then Brian had come up with a a scheme, which was basically a, a, a space frame chassis with the body panels attached to it, which was incredibly stiff. And by the time all the body panels were put on there, which we, a lot of them we had to make handmade, uh, made an incredibly torsional stiff car. It was, which was what they really wanted for a, a rally car. At this point, was it still, this is the initial design being the front engine that, that, Austin Rover had asked for. John, I don't quite know what John Davenport had in mind at the time. Um, We do know that it was a pretty clandestine operation he was running because he hadn't actually told the people in power of Rich Layman what he was doing. So it was pretty much he was getting this thing done. He had some money to do it, but he, he didn't tell anybody what he was actually doing. So he was. He thought that they put the engine in the front. He was thinking along the lines of TR7, I suppose, and cars that they've been used to. But I know, I know for a fact that Patrick said, "Oh, you must be joking. <laughs> that wouldn't be any good. It has to be four-wheel drive. It has to be mid-engine, and we have to build you know, the, the running gear to suit it, the gearbox, the final drive system to the front and to the back." And it needed a decent engine. So he asked what the engine was going to be. And I don't really don't really know what happened. And I know David Wood was involved but I, to design an engine, but initially they had this Rover V8 with the two cylinders cut off it. Uh, and that appeared probably uh, probably six months later, I suppose, after we started. Um, and that would, that's what they had that's what we were going to have to work with uh, John Piper he did the gearbox he did the step off drive for the um, FF viscous uh, clutch um, did a great job of that brilliant did all the bits he had the castings all done it was all assembled in our sub-assembly department uh, with some some work from British Leyland guys who came over from Abington. Uh, um, basically, the shell was done. 
good. All the running gear was fitted, the engine was fitted. Um, at that time, it was a plain looking car. It looked a bit like a Metro. It didn't look like the B-winged monster that appeared later. Uh, that was, the idea was it was supposed to look like a Metro, but the more you got into it, the more you realized it was never going to look like a Metro. Not, not really. You had to, yeah, we had to stretch the wheelbase a bit to get it all in, really. So, and not long after the car had been finished, Michelin said that, oh, um, Brian O'Rourke had based everything around I think it was a 16 inch tire, but they wanted to go to a bigger tire, especially for rough surfaces, you know, gravel. So, the, um, the strut top mounts all had to be changed. They had to be beefed up so you could get the suspension travel because you couldn't get enough before. So anyway, so that was all put together and they went they went testing with it. Uh, Tony Pond was pretty impressed with it. I must admit, I had a ride in it. It frightened the life out of me. <laughs> Going around the test track, it was, um, there was a lot of G-force there. Uh, then they found that the front struts didn't work properly. They were jamming up when it was getting loaded, so they had to be remade, redesigned. Uh, that was done, came back, uh, and then they were doing another test, and I think Tony Tony Pong got it a bit too sideways and ended up in the ditch. <laughs> well, it ran through the ditch, and Tony, uh, it, was, it was covered in mud anyway, so that was his first uh, accident, I think. So from then on, we had to build two more because they wanted three cars. So we built two more prototypes. And from there, really, the the car, the cars went to Abingdon. And then I think they sent one up to Longbridge. Um, Longbridge. It would have been Longbridge for construction, yeah. Yeah, yeah they sent them up there to actually productionize them. And by that point, quite a few things had changed they, they didn't have a steel roof they had an aluminium roof and uh, we realized that they needed to have better cooling and by then i think the engine was online the, the woods engine was done uh, which proved pretty good but did have some issues and it wasn't until cliff humphreys really later on he sorted out the engine to make the producer horsepower because it was a bit unreliable uh, and that, in a nutshell, that's basically it, really. The, the car evolved. Uh, Group B didn't last very long. Uh, but the Metro 6R4 is still out there, still winning rallies. So it's pretty amazing, really, considering that you know, it's 40 years old. I think, I mean, the, the, the engine is, is to me is one of the most enigmatic aspects of the, the entire 6R4 story because, I mean, you know, we all know that the, the initial idea was to, to, for Austin Rover to go their own way with a naturally aspirated engine to, you know, counteract the problems of, you know, lag measured in, in ice ages and, and, and controllability and everything else. But, you know, you know, delving back into that period, there seems to have been quite a lot of confusion about to, about which engine the car would eventually run because of course we eventually got the the six alpha you know the four valve v6 made by david wood 
but before that there was the the chop down one that you, you mentioned which was effectively a you know a, a sean rover v8 but i believe and i could be wrong there was also talk um about using the williams honda uh connection to perhaps form the basis of the the, the, the mg metro 4 engine being the, the same as the one that honda used for its f2 uh two liter v6 do you know anything yeah, about that big, there was a bit of a discussion as i must admit that was it probably was discussed for various reasons maybe they decided that i don't know there was some well, there must have been something that stopped them going that route um yeah, I think you're you're quite right. I've sort of forgotten about that in the midst of time. But whether or not, uh, I don't know, there must be something political going on in the background or something with Honda. I can imagine would have been an ideal candidate, but but it, that that certainly didn't happen. Maybe mm -hmm. maybe the fact that the engine needed, you know, the, the bespoke sump on it to get the full the step off. Mm -hmm. uh, the four-wheel drive maybe there was something in the design or something or working with people uh, on the other side of the world can be a bit awkward Especially people who at that time it was you know it was telexes <laughs> <laughs> and let's face it um japanese engineers again particularly back then had a reputation of being quite steadfast and perhaps stubborn in in their own thinking and and not and not amenable to, to outside influence. Um, and I can imagine that perhaps played a role as well. Yes. I mean, later on in the Formula One side of things, so uh, uh, it took a bit of a while to get them used to sort of the British way of doing things. Um, but they adapted quite quickly. Um, some of the young engineers they had in the drawing office at the time were pretty good providing you told them exactly what you wanted but they always referred back to their hierarchy because that's the way they worked they couldn't they couldn't jump in and say look let's do this they had to go back to their main man and pass it through him and it was slowed all the process down and then of course what happened later on Honda wanted more and more involvement and effectively they wanted to be I think buy into Williams Formula One and told Frank that if they didn't, you know, they'd take their engine away. So Frank basically told them, yeah, clear off. <laughs> <laughs> not not for the first time. <laughs> and they took it to McLaren. So, <laughs> I mean, you know, given all that, it, it's amazing that David Wood's engine, which I believe was developed in, I've read, I've heard 11 months is the figure uh, from, from drawing board to, to first fire up. And, I mean, you know, we can talk, and I'm sure we will do about its its appetite for cam belts and things. But it, you know, when it was working, it made the power, and it was you know had a huge rev range and sounded like nothing else on earth. But you know, it's 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 a fair old thing to get done in comfortably less than a year, even back then, I'd imagine. Oh, I'd say so. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Yeah, especially. I, I don't know where where he went. To get that done, maybe it was Ricardo or something like that. I'm not too sure about that, but getting anything done via British Lading would have been a bit of a nightmare. Really, <laughs> a lot of this, a lot of this was all done clandestinely, and, and I had a, I had just as an an insight into some of the things that went on. Um, 
from Devonport gave me a phone number and said, if you want any body panels, phone this number. <laughs> seems, seems Cryptic. So we got to the point where we needed body panels. So I phoned this number and the guy, whoever he was, Fred Blogg said, you know, what do you need? And I said, well, I need, you know, side panels, bonnet, roof, tail, you know, tail, okay, all the bits and pieces. Okay, he said, okay, well, well, I think it'll be next week. I'll be down with it. So, right, okay. So, so this is... Sorry? So that's John, John Davenport's mate in Birmingham just, like, nicking body panels out the back of Longbridge wow. and trucking them yeah. down. So then the following week, someone shouted, oh, Ian, there's a truck outside. So I go out and there's this massive 40-foot Arctic curtain cider out there. And the guy slides the curtain side long and there's all these but there's thousands of body panels <laughs> and i nearly fell over i said what, what? he and brought all these oh no he said he said we've got to climb up in the middle i've hidden them in the middle of these <laughs> <laughs> so we had to climb up over these body panels to get the ones that were in the middle that <laughs> were free grasses you know so they were brought out if i wanted anything i had to speak to this bloke and he'd, he'd get it so he'd drop it off but uh, yeah, it was quite amusing. To, the way a means of getting stuff wasn't straightforward, that was for sure. But anyway, we, and then we, of course, he he didn't just bring one set of body panels. I think he bought about four sets. So we had body panels all over the place. So, uh, anyway, so we, and then we had to cut them all up to get them to fit. So, <laughs> yeah. To go back to the start a little bit, Ian, um, just... You know, when when you uh, you, you seem pretty you know excited about the project when Patrick came to you, but you know for the rest of the team, you know within Williams to, to be working on a project for you know a, a dirty rally car to be flung about the forests with abandon, was there any sort of you know well you know this is Formula One is is this something that maybe is a bit below our pay grade, or was there a general level of excitement and acceptance to the project from within Williams? No, I think a lot of people were very interested in because, you know, to do, it's all engineering and all the people at Williams are all interested in engineering. It's just another form of engineering. And we were doing things that weren't doing in Formula One. And Formula One at that time was, was very simple, in fact, very simple. Um, the cars, when you look at a Formula One car of that era, there's only two mechanics that ever worked on it. And when you look at the Formula One car today, I mean, they're just like they're just like Swiss watches, aren't they? They're just they're like jewellery. I mean, they they take about ten people just to work on them. But in those days, you know, the Formula One was fairly simple. So to have a four-wheel drive car and have the ability to design all the systems that go into it—the gearbox, the final drive, the suspensions and all the rest of the stuff and the structures and build a rally car it was everybody thought that was really wonderful and there was benefits as well because one of the things we needed early on was uh, something to to bend the pipes we needed a mandrel pipe bender to bend uh, the 4130 tubing that we were using for the space frame so the guy roger tipler who ran the fabrication shop for formula one and went to him and said we needed one. All oh, right, okay. So he went out, he found one, and at the same time he thought, oh, 
we could use this for bending aluminium pipes and exhaust pipes. So it was a bit of a spin-off. So it was a benefit to Formula One as well. So they ended up with a machine, but all this all the actual space frame was done bent on that particular mandrel bender, but it wasn't a, a computer control one. It all had to be done by hand with angles and get the angles right and get all the bends right. So uh, it was interesting. But no, going back to I think everybody in the Formula One thought it was um, Really exciting, really, really good. <laughs> there was a lot of interest. We were all trying to keep it secret, but I don't think that worked terribly well. There were a lot of people in there wanting to see what was going on, and there was looking what's going on with Formula One. Um, I guess quite a lot of this early work we've been talking about would have been conducted in 81, 82, so quite early on in the Metro's development curve, and also quite a, a key period for rallying because it was that well, 1981 when the quattro certainly realized you know showed the way ahead and four-wheel drive uh, were you guys in williams working on the metro 6r4 aware of of how rapidly the world of rallying was going to develop or appeared to be to be moving at the time uh i'd say no not really <laughs> we were just building but the only thing i'd say was when the car was actually to a point where it was, they thought it was competitive, it couldn't be announced because John <laughs> hadn't spoken to the board of directors to tell them what was going on. It was, it was sometime afterwards that it was announced. And by then, I think the Lanciers had come out and also the Fords had come out. And then suddenly the Metro was announced. Everybody thought, oh, well, you know, they've, they've done that pretty quickly. But actual fact, the car was finished before those other two cars were announced. But uh, I think if it, was, if it was done in a different way, if it was all up front, the Metro would have been announced first and there would probably have been more development done into it straight away. Possibly would have been, <clears throat> I don't think there would have been, it would have ended up as any different because there was obviously problem, engine problem. There was other problems as well with the car, but they take a, like all these things, they take a bit of a while to sort them out, but <clears throat> it did eventually get sorted out. And then of course, Group B didn't exist anymore. So. Yes, I mean I've heard uh, one of the, one of the, the the stories, the mythos that seems to go around is that there was this big flat spot spot in the torque range between I think five thousand and six thousand RPM, which no one at Austin Rover could quite ID, and then they finally got a new dyno dyno dynamo, dynamometer in the end of nineteen eighty six, just after Group B had been cancelled, and they cured the issue pretty much straight away, and you know had it been twelve months hither it would have been transformative you know it seems to it seems to be almost to sort of sum up the metro's fortunes yeah well i think the the person responsible for all that was cliff humphreys he was the engine builder mm -hmm. and when group b finished i'm pretty sure he, he set up himself and took that engine and stripped it and they did find that there was a mismatch, I think, in the, in the crank or the Conrad's or something, there was something not right, and it had to be remachined to get that put right. And once he'd done that, and then he turbocharged it, I mean, the Gollop was yes. 750 horsepower without well, the, any problems. 
Gollop won the final um, Group B rally, what, European Rallycross Championship with his in 92. So, yeah. you know, long after, you know, so the fundamental rightness of the engine can't be, can't be denied. Yeah, yeah. So, yeah, I, I, as far as I'm aware, once all the bugs were sorted out, it ended up as an extremely good engine. Ended up in quite a few cars, didn't it, I think? Yeah, Jaguar XJ220. Yeah. Um, would be the most famous one. <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> um, the, the initial uh, prototype that John Davenport requested with the front engine V8, did you guys actually build one of those or did Patrick straight away shoot down the idea or did it actually have any bit of build work done at all? No, and there was no traction whatsoever on that. That was, that was dismissed immediately. <laughs> so it did get built and was driven. Well, well, not a front engine one, no. no. Ever considered to be, uh, uh, you know, something that would be good as a rally car? Anything? To, there was no, there's no space in a, a front engine. Oh, it was crazy. You couldn't put a V6 in, in the front of a Metro. That was nuts. And our four wheel drive, because obviously he was thinking from the point of view of rear wheel drive. But mm. you only had to look what everybody else was going to be doing. That you know that would preclude, preclude that, and you'd have to say, well, no, four wheel drive is. The only way to go and the only way to make that happen is mid-engine you know, power to the front power to the back so it was i suppose patrick probably scratched his head for about 30 seconds and said oh you must be joking <laughs> i'm sure he didn't put it in as polite terms as you just did there either <laughs> well no he was fairly blunt in the they softened up over the years yeah. <laughs> The size of the Metro must have been a, an exciting prospect for, you know, engineers and, and mechanics at Williams, you know, to, in terms of packaging and getting everything in together. It must have maybe been more of a challenge than working on a Formula One car in a way to try and get all this stuff into a hatchback body, you know, and, and you know, smaller, you know, it, if the car was a modern car, it would be much, much bigger, even in that kind of class of vehicle now. But getting all that in must have been, you know, bit of fun and you know quite a nice challenge yeah. for you guys to change the pace uh, yeah it wasn't easy i must admit but um i mean obviously you've been used to with formula one to packaging everything as tight as you possibly can so i don't think anybody thought it was going to be too too difficult there's always ways and means of solving the problems um <clears throat> certainly when it left us and the next time we saw it, when they had all the rest of the gear in it, and I suppose they have all the, the radios and the, the stuff that they have in there, inside it, you know, it seemed to be a lot more stuff in there that we, than we'd uh, put in. So it was a pretty, pretty compact, I must admit. And I think they, when we built it, we had to, uh, before it went, we had to put side impact bars. I think that was something that was required. So. And it had, uh, it had a wing that they did. Uh, Brian O'Rourke suggested that um, a, a rear and a front wing might be a good idea. Um, uh, Austin Rover thought that was hilarious. A rally car with wings is, you know, might work in a Formula One, would work in a rally car. But I think they took it to a wind tunnel somewhere and did the test on it and found it made quite a big of a difference. So it, it ended up with having a front and wing and a rear wing. 
Uh, and I think all these rally cars have got wings now and aerodynamic bits on them. And without them, they're considerably slower. So, you know, it's beneficial. Anything that goes through the air and you can make it work better is is, is worth having. So, yeah. I believe um, from my own research, Brian O'Rourke's background, because he, he was American, I believe. Um, no, he's not American. Oh, was no, he not? Oh, he, okay. I thought, I he, worked, he, was... he worked in America. I've heard him, yeah, I think he was doing something with uh, Northup for the F-18, so wings must have been fairly big at the time. Um, Fibre, that was his background, really. That was what he was very good at. Did, is there any truth in the um, the rumour that some of the Metro 6R4's initial aero was taken straight from the FW06 Williams F1 car? Because I've seen that banded around a few times. I don't. <laughs> oh, that answer is there. I, 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 I don't think so. I think Brian just sketched something out that would do the job. I mean, at that time there was no wind tunnel testing done. It was just a, you know, oh, you know, did something with this aspect ratio. We'll put that on the front and put this one on the back and we'll give you see what happens and suck it and see and that's uh, I think it's pretty much what he did and it, and it worked and it wasn't until he got in the wind tunnel and maybe they fine-tuned it but I don't think there was anything particularly uh, didn't spend much time on it it just happened to have an idea maybe as something that he's seen from his previous employment but um, yeah no it was yeah. difficult, difficult to, for, for Brian to to get past what people's initial thoughts on, you know, aerodynamic devices on the rally cars. It was, I think they had to push quite hard and Patrick pushed hard as well to try and get them because they were very, a bit, you know, not being derogatory, but they were a bit stuck in their ways because they'd only ever rallied road cars, basically modified road cars and to suddenly give them something that was fully adjustable on all four corners in fact I had, when we gave it to them they took they got a phone call and said would you come over and show us how to set the car up because we don't know how to set the car up <laughs> 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 so i had to go over there and explain what you have to do to get the wheels pointed all in the right directions and the camera cast and all the rest of it and then <laughs> equipment made up to enable them to do it so, uh, and their philosophy was you bolt it together, rally it, and that's it. But the philosophy was changing rapidly. You know, in every stage, you take the suspension apart and rebuild it. So, uh, it was a bit of a long, long, a bit of a short learning curve for those guys, but uh, they did a good job. There was some good, bike, good blokes at Abington, some very good blokes. And of course, this was a time as well, you know, the, the concept of the aerodynamics on the Metro were still, you know, years ahead because you know, there was a few wings starting to appear in Group B, but you know, this is a time when a rally car was almost, you know, indistinguishable from its road going counterpart other than its livery and its roll cage, you know, and we still, it's only relatively recently that, you know, real aerodynamic devices have started to make a full-time impact on rallying. You know, things appeared here and there, but, you know, even into to bulk of the 90s such things were limited to you know a rear spoiler that was fairly you know not a very extreme looking wing and to have this thing come out of the gates with this big front wing big rear wing you know appendages on the side very very different than anything else at the time yeah yeah well 
I think once they, once Brian sort of proved that there was a benefit, I think the side pods got modified by one of the engineers, Austin Rover. He suddenly thought, oh, yeah, this is, this is beneficial. So there was all sorts of ideas, I think, a bit of sculpturing in the front wings and airflows. And, you know, they started looking at that in more detail uh, to get the air into the radiators at the back of the car, <clears throat> get the air flowing over the car better. So, uh, yeah, I mean, it gave them food for thought. Uh, yeah. I believe um, a chap called uh, Bernie Marcus uh, was was the fella in charge of the the aero. At least you know certainly when it when it was handed over to Austin Rover, um, and because of the the wings came quite late in the project. Apparently he was. I mean it set gate set him quite a poser because initially with the wings on it redirected all the air sort of through and under the knacker ducts in, in ways that were were never intended. Um, I mean, it, it strikes me as it, it must have been, well, like you say, a very steep learning curve with the aero, and let alone the fact that all these, unlike many of the other Group B rally cars, these wings were on the production cars from day one in an unaltered form, weren't they? Yeah, they were. Yeah, I remember, I, I didn't have much contact with Bernie, um, but yes, I, rem I remember the name. I remember he was doing that, and I think Brian and Bernie used to get together and try and figure out what they were going to do. But I'm not sure there was a vast amount of science in it. Maybe there was a bit later on, maybe. But yeah, the, um, the, the whole thing was driven really a bit by Formula One. Um, there was a bit of reluctance, as I say, you know, but they'd been rallying and we hadn't so they they assumed that they knew more than we did so. <laughs> <laughs> so you come up against that quite a lot so there we are so in the end in the end it ended up as a as quite an exceptional piece of kit really um, i remember john davenport after they they banned group b john davenport they had all these cars not sure how many they had um but john davenport said do i want to buy one and i said to him i said no well how much is it and he said i'll let you have it for 10 grand so at that time 10 grand was a lot of money i didn't have 10 grand uh foolishly i said oh, i can't afford that he was sort of i'm in an r and he might be he might let it have a bit less i said i don't even if, I think I remember the times that I think it was like, if it was five grand, I probably couldn't afford it. So, you know, I didn't, I didn't buy it. Only I wish I, you know, you think, you know, in hindsight, God, blimey, I wish I had. <laughs> I mean, you're right about it, it being a success because, I mean, it certainly found its level. I mean, you know, it, I, th I think it won four, perhaps five national rally championships in 1986. I mean, obviously the, the WRC campaign was beset with reliability issues, but, uh, you know, Oriol won the French championship. Um, I believe Mark Douay uh, did the Belgian one in his um, and various others, you know. So so it's not a failure by any any stretch of the imagination. Um, did, did you follow its its career after your, you know, hands on involvement with the car had ended? Um, I have to say. Just out of interest, probably, probably you know, how's the Metro getting on? But 
by then the department that I'd effectively set up myself, John Piper, he set up his own consultancy business. So he moved on and Brian O'Rourke went across to the drawing office uh, and I set up the prototype department and we were building the new Formula One cars, which at that point was Honda. So we were flat out working on that. So we didn't have a lot of time to think about what was going on with rally cars. Um, and then we heard that Group B was cancelled for various reasons and thought, oh, that was a bit of a waste of time, wasn't it? And that was, you know, all that effort that went into it and nothing really to show for it. But, but no, I don't think anybody during hearing that would have thought, like a lot of those cars, they ended up in museums. But I don't know. Mm. Metro 6R4, I mean, it's... It's had a life of its own. I mean, when you consider that 40 years ago, and now it's still, I, mean, I don't know how much a second-hand one is, it's some ridiculous amount of money, isn't it? Uh, six figures all day long anyway. Height, yeah. You know, quite. Uh, and it's it's definitely, that the prices of them have definitely gone berserk in, in relatively recent years. I think it's the, a new generation who, who weren't, you know, certainly weren't around at the time and who've only sort of learned about Group B, you know, through the internet or whatever. And because of that, the prices of them have soared and the values and whatnot. Yeah. Well, presumably you must be able to still get spare parts for them. There's probably a few companies around. I know one of the guys <coughs> that um, he worked at um, Abingdon, um, I think he worked on the gearboxes or he was a mechanic, a running mechanic, and he specialised in the gearboxes. He set up his own business uh, in Abingdon somewhere, uh, working on uh, mostly uprights and gearboxes and final drives. And I can't think of his name at the moment, although I did employ him when Williams did uh, BMW Le Mans project. Um, was that 18, uh, was that 98, 97? Yeah, yeah. Uh, I'd, I'd phoned him up and asked him what he was doing. and. He wasn't doing anything at the time, so I employed him in the sub-assembly section and he worked on the gearboxes and upright. Uh, and I think he went back to doing Metro stuff after all that fight, you know, stopped. So there were some very good people there, and I suppose uh, there must be still people out there working on those cars. And I know they've evolved you know, the management systems on them and all the rest of it. They've probably been improved no end. Electronic systems during those days weren't particularly good. They were very uh, subject to, to failure. So, and you were using Lucas, presumably, at the time. So that must well, have been... yeah, yeah. <laughs> I, do, I do remember one of, the, one of the guys at Abingdon, they were all talking about electronics and electronic ignition and everything. And he was saying that they had a, when they were running the Vitesses or the V8s or whatever that was, that must have been in touring cars or something. He said early on they were testing it around Oxford and every time they were at traffic lights, quite often the engine would die and it wouldn't start. And then it'd start. It took them ages to find out that one day when they were out somewhere, a taxi pulled up beside them and the bloke was on the, uh, on the radio and the radio waves were cutting right through the ECU and <laughs> switching it off. 
Oh dear, <laughs> that's the most BL story I've ever heard. <laughs> yeah, so they, they fixed that. So yeah, I think they probably the engines are probably a lot more reliable now because the you know, fuel injection is much better and the ECUs are much better and the engine management is much better all around. So they're probably very reliable, probably pretty good. They must be. They're still going like they are. And uh, the the five speed box that was all designed in house by you guys, right? With, with John Piper. Yeah, that was Mike John Endy. Piper did all that. Yeah, that was. Um, yeah, Hewland supplied all the gears. Um, the diff was uh, Ferguson um, diff with silicon inside it, so you could change the slip ratio of it. So that was uh, John Piper. John Piper and um, Brian O'Rourke. Exceptionally good at engineers in their own right. Exceptionally good. Uh, and Brian O'Rourke, I think, I'm not sure if he's retired, but he's probably still at Williams. He's been there for <laughs> so many years now. And he's, he's a carbon fibre man. If ever you need to know anything about that, he's the guy to ask. But uh, there was an interesting or a, a little story where we got the engine in and the gearbox was in and started it up and it was running and right put it in gear and i think john put it in gear and the wheels went round we thought oh great um then thought patrick said that doesn't seem right and what had happened the gear lever had been designed with the pivot point in the wrong place so when you went to put it in first you actually put it in second <laughs> <laughs> so they, they reversed the gate so i remember john panicked a bit he had to go and redesign all that i think that was the only thing that was wrong with it that was the only thing that was ever wrong uh, but uh, yeah they did a great job of that one of the um the things i've heard the early group b cars struggled with at least initially was getting down to the minimum mandated weight of 960 kilograms was that something that you guys struggled with, especially because of the limitations of it being so small? You know, I can well imagine that you had very little room for manoeuvre, literally, when it came to remounting ancillaries for better weight distribution or anything else. Because if you wanted to keep it with inside the, the confines of a nominal metro shell, you really didn't have many options, did you? No, not really. Um... I would suppose at the time that must have came up, but I'm, because we were building the space frame and then putting steel panels on it, mm -hmm. I think at the time, I don't think we were really too concerned about the weights. It was just a prototype we were building to find out if it was viable, I think. That's what John Davenport wanted, and what Patrick wanted. Mm -hmm. And certainly once they found that, yeah, this looks like it's a, you know, could be what we want to race, they looked at ways and means to put the aluminium roof on and you know, lots of fiberglass suddenly started appearing everywhere. And so I, I don't, I, personally, I've got no idea what the thing weighed. No idea at all. Mm -hmm. Throughout the, the development process then, how much testing, you know, on the road or on stage was being done while you guys still had the care? You know, was there, you know, at what point were you bringing it to, was it Cadwell Park? There was testing done at, amongst other places. You know, and then was there stuff back to the drawing board again? You know, how, how much how much testing went on on the road 
during the course of the prototype build? Well, I don't think there was very much road work. I mean, there's a, there was an airfield near Abington there that they used to take you to. Tony Pond and turn up and then they blast it round the uh, runways and around a bit of a, a rough area and they satisfied themselves that everything seemed to be working okay so they, they just pressed the button on the program really so I don't remember an awful lot of testing I mean later on once the car was what they thought would be suitable to go rallying they did obviously testing then but I don't think there was a very much in the way of testing being done. Once it um, once it left us, it went to went to Abingdon. We didn't really see it after that. So, you know, that was the end of the project for us, sort of thing. You know, we built the other two and they disappeared as well. And like I said earlier, then we moved on to something else. So, you know, job done, tick that one off and get on with the next thing. So. Was there a, a sort of definite handover date and event that when when Williams and, and your involvement with the Metro ended and it was passed over to Austin Rover full time? Uh, or was it did it sort of bleed through and you know there were fellows from Williams, you know, working all the way on it up until 1986? No, I, I, no, definitely not. <clears throat> um, once we'd finished the three prototypes. Um, well, once we finished the first prototype and that disappeared over to Abingdon, um, myself and the other chap, we had to build the other two, but we'd already built one, so we knew what we were doing, so it was only a matter of assembling it. And then I think once we had that shell done, it, that, that went to Abingdon and they put all the running gear in it. So you know, that was it. We were, we were out of a job. <laughs> <laughs> off, to, off to Honda powered F1 dreams. <laughs> yeah, that was it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Turbocharged F1 engines, you know. So that was the next thing on the list, and uh, something that we had to learn about and understand and build the cars. Now, there wasn't much time to do anything else. Uh, I, don't, I don't think there was any. It was left up to Austin Rover to sort out the problems after that. Um, once they got the handle on it, you know, they understood what was going on. They had some good people working there. So they sorted it all out and went rallying. Wonderful. I've heard there's some, uh, so there are some quite hairy stories from the test program. I know it must have been quite an early car, definitely before the four valve engine was, was delivered in 1985, um, where Steve Sofa. Phil Soper filled in for Tony Pond um, for, for once, once, once at Abington and became the first person to write off the Metro 6R4 in a huge, you know, multi-barrel roll shunt. Um, but I assume you weren't present and correct for that. <laughs> no, no. I'm, in actual fact, I'm not even aware of it. <laughs> Must have been used to his uh, Rover SD1 race car, I guess. <laughs> yeah, yeah, maybe. Yeah, I mean, the thing is that the... They were incredibly strong. Incredibly, I mean, if you were going to have an accident, you know, it'd be good to have one in the 6R4 compared with a lot of other B-spec cars because they were like, well, I don't know, they were like incredibly fragile. Certainly there was a, quite a few accidents. That, there was one where they rolled one, was it mechanics rolled one down the side of a hill somewhere, didn't they? In Greece, I think. They went out to 
they'd done something to it and they went out to test it and lost control of it and then rolled it down the side of a hill, <laughs> wrecked it, and the two guys got out of it without you know without injury. The car was pretty much trashed. So yeah. <clears throat> perhaps I've seen um photos of Ari Vatanen having um crashed an RS seventeen hundred T while testing in Greece, um, which perhaps could have been that. But um yeah, hairy stuff. No, it was a, a very strong car. In fact, Michelin said that, that Torshnel went to, must have gone to Paris, uh, and they tested it for torsional stiffness, and they said it was the stiffest rally car they'd ever tested on their equipment because mm -hmm. it was incredibly stiff because you can imagine the space frame mm -hmm. fully triangulated plus all the panels in there. It was, well, you had to be like that. It makes the suspension work. You don't want the thing twisting, sort of moving around. So. I mean, the Michelin link has always puzzled me because I believe I'm correct in saying that it was initially going to have 13-inch wheels um, and the initial rubber development was done with that in mind and the suspension development. But then come 1984 and two full-year Group B development, Michelin apparently got in touch with someone at Austin Rover and said, would you like to perhaps upgrade to 15-inch wheels, the same being used by Peugeot and Audi? And I don't know if it was so much an offer as a, a strong arming. Um, and I mean, you might be able to shed more. I can imagine that must have set development back a few paces purely because of the redesign. Um, yeah, I think that's the bodywork. Well, yeah, uh, it was a bit of bodywork change. And if obviously you know the car well, and you can see that the, the bits on top of the towers, they were put on there so you could get more travel. So, yeah, there was. Uh, I don't know the uh, politics behind that at all. It was just something that happened and then changes had to be made. And I'm not sure if we actually did anything like that. Mm -hmm. I think that, that was probably down to maybe John Piper and maybe Brian O'Rourke probably looked at it and said, oh, what we need to do is mm -hmm. add this on. And maybe they got the stuff made somewhere and added them on. But... Uh, yeah, everybody was running much bigger tyres in those days. I think initially, Don, John Davenport was very keen to have it look like an Audrey Metro rather than this wacky racer. Because <laughs> you have to sell it to the board, you see. And I, I think if it was a bit too wild, they would probably thought, what, what the hell's this? <laughs> yeah, it's funny, isn't it? Because, I mean, you know, Peugeot managed that with the 205 T16, which, which despite being wild, does have a passing resemblance to uh, GTI, whereas yeah. a Metro 6R4, despite following the same formula somehow, probably because of that cow catch of front wing, always looks a little bit more extreme. <laughs> yeah, it, does. it does. Looks like a Pike's Peak car, doesn't it? Very much so. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Absolutely. <clears throat> This was at least, and you, you know, you were about to leave Williams, you know, prior to the, the Metro program, but it, it ended up keeping you, keeping you there for a good long yeah, time afterwards. Well, it was a yes, it was peculiar, and and during because I was chief mechanic and I stopped at the end of nineteen eighty, they they got another chief mechanic, obviously, Alan Chalice, who had been at Lotus. Now, Patrick employed him because he thought he was, you know, he'd been around for a long time. He'd been with BRM and he'd been with Lotus, and so he thought he would be very good. But it turned out that he was more—he was very good at management and management of people, but he wasn't engineering 
he wasn't very good at the engineering. So consequently, they could be running FW07 with the B, which was out without the skirts. So I was doing Metro and going backwards and forwards to the Formula One to do sort of engineering on the cars and making sure that, the, you know, that they were right. Because they were very reliable cars, but they had to be maintained to a high level. And so I was doing doing that. So I was doing two jobs, really. It wasn't really until you know, they went on to uh, W8, which was uh, DFE-powered car with Kathy Rosberg and everything. And then they got the Honda engine. So by then, Metro had finished anyway. So, yeah, I was pretty busy. I was, I was that wasn't that wasn't intentional when I thought I'd just be doing the 6R4 but I ended up doing a lot more so it's all engineering it's all interesting so that was the other thing another reason that I was getting a bit fed up because when you're when you're racing and you're at the track it all sounds very glamorous but it gets a bit boring because you're doing the same thing week in week out you don't actually learn an awful lot uh, I was always interested in the engineering aspect, so uh, to have the opportunity to to work on something that hasn't been done before and put your own ideas into it, it appealed to me more. So that was another reason I wanted to do something else. But as it turned out, it was with Williams and not some other team. So. Well, I suppose on on that note, Ian, I think you you've probably given us uh, a pretty good. Uh, insight into into your experiences with the metro so we won't keep you too much longer but um we do appreciate uh coming on and sharing your stories with us it's great to get get a, a you know insight as i say from a man on the ground at the time in a, in what was a st- was and still is a very interesting project and care um you know still yeah. remembered oh, very yeah. fondly yeah well it's not, no problem i'm not doing very much at the moment so yeah that's good i mean the thing is that surprising what you can remember all those years ago really so i mean i think you know it, it's it's a car that's always held i think rally folks attention for various reasons not well at least alone the noise it made which is like nothing else on earth but also the fact that it was so tumultuous you know that four and a half years from you know patrick head speaking to to to, to, to the austin rover guys at um paul ricard to the end of group b um it, it's it, it there's so much that goes well wrong and right you know you've got three different mooted engines various gearbox configurations the idea that the engine might be in the front for two minutes you know it's it's there aren't many group b programs that went through quite as many what ifs <laughs> yeah well i suppose it was a when it was first mooted, I, I had this thing in my head that, you know, there might be 10 of us working on it, and it didn't work out. There was only four of us. <laughs> <laughs> and all so, the more an achievement for that. Well, I suppose so. But, uh, yeah, we had some good laughs on the way. So, yeah, it was uh, it was interesting. Yeah, and I'm glad to see it's still, it's still out there. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. Thanks very much, uh, Ian. Okay, no problem. Absolutely, thank you very much for your time, Ian. I really appreciate it. Yeah, that's no problem at all. No problem. Glad, glad to talk to you. And with that, uh, episode eight of Rally DNA comes to a close. Uh, it's great to talk to Ian Anderson. I mean, thoroughly interesting chap. You know, to be one of the four guys involved in the, the Metro prototype program 
basically instigated the prototype department at Williams and uh, you know, to be involved in a, what was a very different rallying proposition at the time to, to approach a Formula One team in order to bring this project to fruition. So it was, uh, it was great to hear his stories. Thanks very much for listening and stay tuned as ever. Bye-bye.